welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. You all look lovely this morning. My name's Mike, if we haven't met. Uh, I'm the lead pastor here at Awaken. Um, so, welcome to you, first and foremost, to all the fathers out there, young and old, and those who maybe are longing to be fathers. Uh, we salute you. Thank you for who you are and what you do. Um, welcome to Awaken. We're in a series called, yeah, yeah, there we go. We'll take that. I got a lovely little card this morning from one of mine that I will not be reading to any of you. That one's just for me. Um, so we're in a series called Lost in Translation. Uh, if you're new to Awaken, this is a series where we're taking the hardest passages in the Bible to understand and we're tackling them. Because, like, why not? Right? Let's do it. Uh, let's go big or go home. So uh, I'll invite you to turn to 2 Kings chapter 2. This sermon is entitled, 42 Kids, Two She-Bears, and One Bald Prophet. Uh, now, before I jump in, I want to just uh, I want to say a couple of things. Uh, I want to recognize the the pain and the difficulty um, of this last week for many people. Um, actually, last Sunday, I don't I don't typically read news on Sunday mornings, uh, and so I'm usually in my car going over my sermon. And so I honestly didn't know uh, about Orlando until uh, the greeting during the second hour. Somebody came up and mentioned it to me. So if you were wondering um, how we might go through that gathering and not say anything, um, that was just kind of the way it went. Um, so if you were offended, uh, at least I wanted to give some context for that. Uh, and I plan to talk about this in a more um, uh, concentrated way uh, in a couple of weeks. I've been planning on that. And I thought about sort of scrapping everything that I had planned for this week and, and doing that uh, this week. But uh, I think wisdom has won out in the end. I am, maybe don't look as old as I feel sometimes, but I think I'm getting wiser. And I want to teach that, and I want to do it in a way that's really um, prepared and uh, precise um, and with a lot of thought and intention behind that, because unfortunately that is not always the case. Um, and so I hope that you will extend me some grace um, while I prepare to do that. Um, I will say at least this. Uh, I believe that God's heart breaks and weeps uh, when things like this happen in our world. Um, that death and violence is not a part of the plan. Uh, nor is it any part of God's um, providential um, way by which glory is brought to God. I just, I do not affirm that. I don't think God needs death and violence to be glorified. Um, I think that death and evil are real, and I think that they oppose the things of God in the world, and sometimes we get caught in the middle of that. Um, I don't believe that this tragedy is, is a result of one person's sin or a group of people's sin any more than I think cancer is a result of somebody's sin. Um, I think that the good news of Jesus is for the most marginalized and outcast. I think it always has been, and it always will be. Um, and so I think that... Uh, Jesus, I know that Jesus stood with and ate with those who were marginalized in his community and in his day and in his age, and I think that he would be in solidarity with uh, the LGBTQ community um, today, and so uh, I am as well, uh, as insofar as I can, and I'm able, um, and I would encourage you to be as well, um, in whatever way that, whatever form that takes, regardless of your position on the, on the issue, um, what does it mean to be in solidarity with those who suffer? That is the call of the gospel, and so I would, inf I would implore you to think about that this morning. Um, so stand, if you will, 2 Kings chapter 2, starting in verse 23. It says this, From there, 
Elisha went up to Bethel. As he was walking along the road, some boys came out of the town and jeered at him. Get out of here, baldy, they said. Get out of here, baldy. Because he needed to hear it twice. He turned around, looked at them, and called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. Then two bears came out of the woods. In some translations, it says she-bears. It actually is female in the, in the original. Then two she-bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the boys. And he went on to Mount Carmel from there, returned to Samaria. Because that's a normal day in the life of a prophet. <laughs> Pray with me if you would. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for this community. Thank you for all of the gifts and ways in which you offer yourself to us. Uh, so as we uh, dive into this story and what it might mean for us today, um, Lord have mercy. Um, give us eyes to see you. I believe with all my heart that your heart shows up in the scriptures everywhere. So uh, help us find it here. And all God's people said with conviction, amen. You may be seated. Holy buckets. 42 children, two she-bears, and a bald prophet. I think I can say confidently that this passage, um, there are a lot of people who have a lot of objections to the Bible, and this passage is not helping our cause. Okay? <laughs> uh, at first glance, you have 42 kids mauled by two she-bears because they insulted a prophet. And um, that should, I think... Um, elicit a series of questions, one being, what kind of God would not only allow this thing to happen, but s seemingly cause it to happen? Uh, number two, how insecure do you have to be as a prophet to let kids get that far under your skin that you would call down a curse of hungry bears on them? Uh, and three, why does it have to be two she-bears? I mean, if I'm a woman, I'm like, doubling down on the, what's up with this passage? Like, why's it gotta be two girl bears? Why not a guy and a girl? What's up with that? Right? I mean, that's an honest question. So here's what I wanna do today. I wanna start by zooming out. I wanna ask some questions about like, what kind of story are we reading here? And I think that will help us make sense of a little bit what we read. Then I wanna zoom in and ask some questions about what's actually in the text. So this is where some theological training is, in fact, helpful. So I plan to offer my education to you um, this morning. So all that was paid to Bethel. You will be the benefactors of, I hope. Uh, and then I want to zoom back out and, and ask a question about, like, where are we in the story? Because I think that's really important. Um, that's a question that's about the arc of the scriptures, the sort of meta-narrative that's happening there. So a little bit of history so we can find ourselves in the midst of this, right? First and second kings, or first kings begins with the coronation of Solomon as the king of Israel. It ends with um, this king named Jehoiakim from Judah, uh, which is one of the, uh, the southern tribes of Israel, um, being released from prison in Babylon, all right? So it begins with Solomon, it ends with this other guy. It spans about 400 years. We're talking like 960 to 550 BC, somewhere in there. Um, the northern kingdom of, of Israel, of which there are ten tribes, gets swallowed up by Assyria in about 772. So partway through First and Second Kings, the northern kingdom is taken over by Assyria. The southern kingdom is taken over by Babylon in, in 587. If you know ancient history, the Babylonians roll in and destroy what was the first temple of Israel. All right, so that's kind of where we are in the landscape of history. So let's sort of uh, zoom out here and, and begin with this first question of what kind of story are we reading? I heard this quote this last week or maybe a week, two weeks ago, and I've been 
sort of noodling on it again and again, and I really think it's, it's worth noting here. Questions elicit answers of their kind. Let me say that again. Questions elicit answers of their kind. You ask a bad question, and guess what you're going to get? Or you ask an uninformed question, and guess what you'll get? You ask a shallow question, and guess what you're going to get? On the flip side, I think, if you ask a question that opens things up, that elicits curiosity and wonder and um, continues the conversation instead of shuts it down, you get an answer in kind. Now, this is interesting for a group of people in a culture that doesn't really like to live in the questions, us, Western Americans, right? And I think also, some of us have never really been taught how to ask a good question, which is actually at the heart of Judaism and the ancient tradition that we come from. This wrestling with the text and what's the next best question is actually part of the way in which the ancient rabbis would study the text. So, what kind of story are we reading here? I think is a good question. Did it happen? Was it real? Did they really die? Maybe not good questions, but what kind of story are we reading here? So that's what I hope this question is bringing out. Um, What are we reading here? This is biblical narrative in terms of genre. So if you have Shakespeare and you have poetry or you have prose, this is what many people call biblical narrative. Now, you have to know a couple things about biblical narrative. It's kind of history, but it's kind of not. When we think about history, um, First and Second Kings have a, a historical background, absolutely, but they're not written in the way that modern historians write history. That's just not what's going on here. For example, First and Second Kings covers like 400 years of history, and there's one chapter with 66 verses, First Kings chapter 8, that are devoted to the dedication of the temple and Solomon's prayer. All the while, years and years of history are just totally glossed over, not even mentioned. So clearly there's something that determines what's important to the person who wrote 1 and 2 Kings. Now the good question is, what is it, right? They're not just writing history for the sake of information, like we maybe do when we think about history. Um, It's not just the story of human events. I would say that it's actually a theological history. It is the story of God's actions in and among a group of people how and why God might have acted in a certain way and why those people were where they are or were where they were. And so if that's the lens, then this person's writing with a certain agenda as a writer, which is why you spend 66 verses on one event and nothing on others, right? You track in there? So there's something that determines what's important and what's not for the people who are writing this. One question we could ask is when, where, and why was it written? Why was First and Second Kings even written? What, what purpose does it serve? When you start digging here, I think you start getting to what this passage is really doing. As nearly as we can tell, this book was written like 570, 550 BC. And it's written to Jews who were living in exile in Babylon and Egypt. So the, 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 the nations of Israel have become two kingdoms. Those kingdoms have been sacked. The Jews are dispersed all over the ancient Near East. And this book is written to those people. And it's answering some really important questions. Jeremiah and Ezekiel let us know that these people were really upset about, why, about the fact that somebody came in, sacked the temple, and ran them off to all parts of the world. They're, they're mad at God. They believe that God had not treated them right. They believe that maybe God wasn't, hadn't fulfilled his covenant to them. And some of them were kind of ready to abandon the faith. They were ready to sort of call it in because God didn't do what they thought God should do. And so First and Second Kings is written... I think, to show a group of people that, in fact, God had not mistreated them, but their disobedience is, in fact, somewhat the result of why they are where they are. 
God had been faithful to the covenant. They had not. So there's this massive word. It's called Deuteronomic History and Theology. Okay, I'll give you 50 cents if you can spell that correctly. Deuteronomic History and Theology. The idea is that Joshua judges, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Samuel, are all part of what some call the minor prophets. Then there's the major prophets, which is Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, the minor prophets. And these books are connected to the book of Deuteronomy. So everything that happens in Deuteronomy, 1 and 2 Kings, Joshua judges, 1 and 2 Samuel, it's kind of working all of that out. And one idea that comes from that is Deuteronomic theology. And it's essentially this. Israel, if you obey, here's what will happen. Life. Uh, wholeness, flourishing, uh, shalom will happen if you obey. Deuteronomy talks about this. Exodus talks about it. Leviticus has these kinds of passages. Then there's the other side. Israel, if you do not obey, here's what will happen. Death of all kinds. When you live apart from God, everything dies, right? You will die as a nation. You will die politically. You will die militarily. You will die spiritually. And there's all kinds of ways in which that looks. So if you obey, blessing, flourishing, wholeness, shalom. If you don't, death. That's Deuteronomic theology, all right? Everybody's still tracking so far? Okay. Um, so you have a writer who's looking back in history, and he's trying to tell this group of people who are wondering, where has God gone? Why is God not doing what God said God would do? And this writer is saying, a large portion of why you're where you are is because you were here in this whole binary of obeying and disobeying. And so some of the consequences of where you find yourself are directly connected to your disobedience, and unfaithfulness as a partner in this relationship. Not to mention, I think we're on solid ground when we look at a passage like 2 Kings to say that in biblical narrative there is often allegory and exaggeration and what some would say myth or um, uh, allegory. Not myth like it's not true or it's false, but myth like this is a story that shapes a nation's identity and a people's identity. So this is a mythic story in that sense. Not that it's untrue, but that it shapes them as a people. So like, for example, in the book of Joshua, you have, at the end of Deuteronomy, God says, wipe everybody out when you get into the land. Don't, don't take anybody in marriage. Don't take anybody prisoners or slaves. Like, wipe them all out. Start fresh, which is a sermon I'll probably be giving later on in the series. But then Joshua comes in, and the book, Joshua says that they wiped everybody out. It was this massive conquering, and God, Yahweh, was faithful, and God is big, and our God is bigger than your God because we're here and you're not anymore. And then in the book of Judges, you find that they're being judged for intermarrying with the people that Joshua says that they annihilated. So Joshua says that they cleared all these people out, and then in the book of Judges, you find that they're actually still there, and they've intermarried with them, and that's part of the problem. So, like, which is it, right? Either somebody's lying, or what Joshua is doing is very common in the ancient Near East. They would sort of trump up the experience or the history, because that never happens, right? The winners of history over-exaggerate to say, like, actually, here's how it went down, and our God is bigger than your God. And I would argue that's exactly what's happening. So when we read 2 Kings, this is not fact like someone's reporting what happened, but this is a story about a people and how they found themselves where they are. I think we have to start there, zoomed out. What kind of literature are we reading, all right? Secondly, what does the text actually say? Now, uh, there are three Hebrew words for when we get the children part in this passage. I'd put them on the screen if I had one, but they are as follows. Katan, Nair, and Yeled. Katan means small, 
Uh, small in quantity, size, number, age, status, or importance. So David, the runt of the litter, was called the, the katan of Jesse's children. Um, Nair, boy or girl, servant or young man. Yeled, boy, child, son, or young man, essentially like somebody's offspring. Now what's important is where were these used in the, in the scriptures before this? Like how do we understand what these mean? In Hebrew, there's less vowel, there are no vowels and so there's less letters, which means there's less words, which means that if you say one word, it could mean five to 10 different things, right? This is why people get so frustrated with, with Hebrew. It's like, that could be this, it could be that. And that's part of the dance is you have to wrestle it to the ground. So these words, when used other places in scriptures, refer to not necessarily children, but either young men or immature men. So it's used of uh, Solomon when he refers to himself when he prayed for wisdom after he becomes king, this uh, Nair and, and Katan. Uh, it's used to talk about this, uh, this rebel Hadad the Edomite who fled Solomon's kingdom and then he married the Pharaoh's sister-in-law. This word Nair is used to refer to David, the mighty man of valor. It's all of David's brothers are called Nair. Uh, David's son Absalom, as he's leading the military into battle, he's called this. Um, what does all this mean? Here's what I'm saying. At the, I think at the very least we're standing on good ground when we interpret 2 Kings to say that this wor these words that are translated boys or children in your text could be and maybe should be translated better young men or immature young men. So is it possible to imagine a scenario in which you have a large group of young men who think they know more than maybe they actually know, puffed up with bravado, who are sort of taunting and making fun of somebody who isn't following the crowd but actually is going in a different direction? Can you imagine a scenario in which that might happen in our lives? A bunch of dumb, young, immature boys, right? I think that... Um, that may, in fact, be what's happening. Not to mention, um, when's the last time uh, two bears came out of the woods and there were 42 people and they all stuck around to watch it happen? <laughs> right? Like, many would argue that there's a mob of people, immature rabble-rousers who are taunting the prophet, and when the bears come out of the woods, if, in fact, they came out of the woods, not the, for the 42nd person wasn't, like, the last one standing there waiting to see what would happen. But like bears are swiping and people are running and 42 of them got whacked and the rest of them ran away. I think that's a totally plausible scenario for this, uh, this story. One Bible scholar puts it this way. 42 of these arrogant rebels were clawed as divine punishment, which I think is about as precise as we should be. Bottom line, I don't think you have to do any gymnastics at all, theologically, to believe that the text is not saying that 42 defenseless children were eaten by bears on this day. All right? You may need, you may need to do a little digging. Yes, you got to get to the language. I, I'll give you that. But it's, once you're there, it's all in front of you. It's all in front of you. So you have biblical narrative, which is not telling of facts like history like we do, but rather this theology of a people. How did we get where we are? Then you have the actual text in and of itself. And then maybe the most important question that I want to focus on this morning, which is, where are we in the story? Whenever you read a Bible passage, it's important to ask, where are you in the story? Because where you are in the story will help you understand what's happening and what's actually being said. The Old Testament, if you were to, if you were to sort of sum it up into a couple of words, it's, it's this. The, the Old Testament is a story about exodus and liberation moving towards shalom and wholeness. It's a story about exodus and liberation from Egypt in particular, but Egypt in general, which is a narrow place. 
And it's a story about Exodus and liberation to shalom and wholeness, this promised land that God promises the Israelites, which is in, in fact a place and a spiritual state of being. Egypt is in fact a place and a spiritual state of being. So the whole story of the Old Testament is about Exodus and liberation moving towards shalom and wholeness. What's absolutely fascinating about 2 Kings is where the people are in the story. In 2 Kings, they are post-Exodus, right? They've left Egypt, they've gone through the desert, they've gone through the wilderness, through the Red Sea. God has brought them into the land that God promised them. They are in the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. And you would think that that kind of life would be characterized by certain qualities. We see this in the book of... uh, uh, of Exodus, where the, the people are tabernacled, or they're, they're around the tabernacle. So you have the tabernacle in the center, and the whole community is centered, or is gathered around the tabernacle, so they would all camp facing one another. And the idea is this. When you see God, you see your neighbor. And when you see your neighbor, you see God. And if you miss God, then you've missed your neighbor. And if you miss your neighbor, then you've missed God. This is sacred community. And this is what it means to live in relationship with Yahweh. This is promised land-like living. So they're in the promised land, and yet the promised land has become a narrow place again. The promised land has become Egypt for them again. And, And interestingly, and I think there's something here for us, the Israelites have become the Egyptians in some ways. The people that they hated that enslaved them, they've actually become Which is fascinating, isn't it? The things that we hate about other people or that we despise about someone else. Very, very careful, friends. Because Pharaoh is right around the corner and so often we become the people or the thing in the people that we hate very easily. Now, where are we in this story? Leviticus 26 is one of these passages that says, like, if you obey, if you don't obey. And in Leviticus 26, there's this word that comes and it says, Shema. Does anybody recognize that word, Shema? Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one God. It's the most famous prayer the Israelites pray. This word is in Leviticus 14. And essentially what the author is saying is, if you all will hear, here's what will happen. And if you all will not hear, here's what will happen. The the author of Leviticus is essentially saying, inviting them to you know, in terms of disobeying, he's saying, listen, you need to leave living without hearing is essentially the invitation. So this moment for Israel is huge. It's massive. In the book of Kings, the first chapter, Elisha and Elijah. Elijah was the prophet of God. He was the most famous prophet of God. And in the first chapter, there's this great moment where there's this transition between one to the other. And they go across this river. Literally, the text says that Elijah the prophet parts the river, like we've been here before, right? He parts the river and they cross over and then Elisha receives a double portion of what the spirit that was on Elijah and then Elijah is caught up in a whirlwind and chariots of fire and that's why we have that great movie and song. So then Elisha, the new prophet of God who has a double portion of what Elijah had, said, the text says that he splits the river again and he literally crosses over. Now in Hebrew, the word Hebrew means to cross over. So what's just been said? Elisha, the prophet of God, the messenger of God, who's just been given this mantle of leadership among the people to give a message to the people to obey and repent, come back, crosses over. He literally Hebrews into the promised land 
And then we get 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 23. So the moment in the story, like you couldn't get a bigger one for Israel. Listen, friends, here's the direction towards life. Go this way. Stop going this way. Turn around. The prophets have come. They've been telling you this message. And then here's a new prophet who's got a double portion of what the other prophet had. And here he is, and he's saying to you, as a Hebrew in the promised land, repent, come back. And then you have this moment in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 23. As a story goes, you can't get a more pivotal point. There's another ver- uh, version of this in the book of Acts, if you remember this story in the book of Acts. The, the, the Spirit comes down in Acts chapter 2, and the church receives the Spirit of God, and it's this massive moment where they're now empowered to be the people that God has called them to be in the world. And Acts chapter 3 is the story of Ananias and Sapphira. They sell some land, they don't give all the money, and they, they're struck dead. At which point you kind of ask, like, man, that seems like a pretty serious consequence for, it was their land for crying out loud. What if they didn't want to give all of the money to the, to the apostles? That's not that big of a deal. But from a story perspective, you cannot get a more egregious offense. And I would argue in both of these cases, in 2 Kings and in Acts, from a literary perspective, from the storyteller's perspective, the punishment is as egregious as the offense in the story narrative. So friends, when you read 2 Kings 2 and 42 kids, who I would argue are a mob of young, immature people who are taunting the prophet of God, receive punishment for their actions, I think it is a part of a larger story and a moment in which it is vital that Israel listens and leaves this life of not hearing God's voice. So, as we maybe move towards closing this, as I land this plane, as they used to say, I want you to try as best as you can to imagine, to set aside sort of our modern assumptions about history and reporting facts as truth and how we read and interpret it. Do your best to really enter this story, this moment where you are the people of God who have been brought out of slavery out of oppression and into freedom, living in a promised land that God has promised you. And you're doing so in such a way that you actually represent the people from which you've been saved from. You have become the anti-kingdom. You have become the antithesis of all that God intends for you to do and be. And you are ignoring the loving and gracious invitations and advances of the divine to come back. And not only that, you spit in the face of the prophets, the ones that people, the people that God has sent you. And in fact, you want them dead. Go up, baldy, go up, baldy, is what they say. Which is basically like, we want for you what happened to Elijah. We want you dead. We don't want to listen to you, and we want you dead. So, a few questions as we move towards a, uh, a bit of silence. What does it mean to be deaf to the voice of God in our lives? And how far do you have to travel to get there? Where you can't hear God's voice anymore. Where things are so hard and so calloused that the loving and gracious, and I would argue the heart of God, when it shows up and invites you back, you can't hear it. And how serious is that situation? Like, would two mama bears charging out of the woods get your attention? 
so I'm going to invite John Mark and uh, our team back. They're going to lead us uh, with at least one song as we close. I want to invite us to a time of silence, and I want to ask a couple of questions to lead you into that. So if you would, maybe, uh, just prepare your hearts to spend a bit of time with God and uh, hopefully the Holy Spirit as they lead us to what's true this morning. A couple of questions for you. Is there any sense in which you have hardened your heart towards God? Is there any sense in which you've hardened your heart towards God? Maybe another question to consider this morning. Who are the people you despise? Who are the people you despise? Maybe one last question. What kind of drastic measure would it take to get your attention? To hear God's voice. Because I think the story of the scriptures is the story of a God who constantly, again and again and again, says, come back, come back, come home. And so maybe you're wandering this morning. Maybe you've come with questions. Maybe you've come as somebody who follows God but has hardened your heart in some way. And I would invite you to let this story maybe uh, invite you to a place of hearing God's voice again. So God, as we take this moment of silence, would you speak? Would you open up our hearts? Would you uh, graciously and lovingly chip away and break through whatever walls or barriers or callousness has grown so that we can see you for who you are and we can hear you in your voice for what it is. Give us the courage to hear it and stand in it, I pray. Speak Holy Spirit. Friends, would you stand for a benediction this morning? Uh, Remind you, if you have need for prayer for any reason, our prayer team would love to pray with you and for you. Um, Yeah. So this morning, may you leave the places of not hearing God's voice. May you turn around and walk towards wholeness and peace. May you find life and fullness in relationship with God who made you and made it all. Grace and peace, my friends. Let's sow some grace in the world. Amen? All right, let's do it. Find us online at www.awakeningcommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awakening Community or on Twitter at Awakening Community. See you next time.